The Bible is a book with two testaments, right? The Bible is a book of books. Now, when you move into the, the Older Testament, which was the Jews, Jesus being the Messiah of the Jews, and you look at the New Testament, which explains his death, his life, his uh, offer of salvation, in that, it, it even has subdivisions in that. Gospels that tell the narrative of Jesus. At the end, the apocalypse, which tells the, the end of the, the age. And then the book of Acts, which tells and chronicles the beginning of the church. The book that really is isolated above all other books as the central focus of articulating what Christians believe is the book of Romans. And it's been our joy to study through that. We found our way all the way to chapter 8. Now, as we've said over and over, you don't have to seminary, go to seminary to know that chapter 8 comes after chapter, and that's significant because chapter 8 is a serious hinge between what's come before and what's going to come afterwards. Everything changes in chapter 9. The tone of the letter changes. The content of the letter changes. It's, it's a very different tone from there forward. This is now the climax, the center point of the book. And it really dials into one simple introductory and summation verse in verse 1 of chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you've been around the church very long, you know this name, Charles Wesley. In fact, I want to do something um, a little bit uh, uh, on the spur, if I can. Robert, can you find a hymnal somewhere around you? And all I want you to do, I'll, I'll ask you for this number in a second. I just want to know how many hymns are in the hymnal, okay, total. So they're numbered. You don't have to count them, okay? So just tell me that number in a second. Charles Wesley was a prolific hymn composer. Robert, how many hymns are in there? 818 in our hymnal. Charles Wesley has over 5,000 hymns attributed to his pen. We're seeing many of them to this day. In fact, my favorite Christmas carol is a hymn of Charles Wesley, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Probably the densest, uh, most dense with theology Christmas carol we sing. Let me give you a little background on Charles Wesley, however, that you might not be familiar with. Charles Wesley, his brother John, they, they actually were founders of a group that would become a denomination called the Methodist, right? And they were called the Methodists because of the methods that they employed. Early rising, strict Bible study, very uh, strict attention to every part of their living. Yet they founded that group and began pursuing the Lord, at least that's what they thought, when they were unbelievers. They were caught in debilitating legalism. By that, they were trying to do enough to catch the attention of God enough that they might make it to heaven. Well, Charles came to the American colony called Georgia as a missionary, but it turned out really badly for his soul and for his, his body. He was broken. He tried to evangelize settlers. He tried to evangelize uh, Indians and to no avail because his evangelism was basically trying to tell them to do better and try harder to be better. That was his message. He knew that he wasn't living up to the standard he was calling those to whom he was preaching. He returned to England, 
broken physically, broken spiritually. He made the acquaintance of a Moravian named Peter Bowler, who urged both Charles and John to look more deeply at the states of their souls and taught them about evangelical Christianity. You say, what is that? That Jesus has done the work of salvation rather than our own works and merit. In May of 1738, that's an important date that I'll come back to in an important year rather, He was in the midst of another illness because he was literally, quote unquote, working himself to death, trying to do as much as he could. It sounded so much like Martin Luther, who was almost killing himself trying to please God. He began to read Luther's commentary on the book of Galatians and was stirred and convicted at what Christ had done for him as opposed to what he was trying to do to earn Christ's favor. And he was radically converted. Here's what he writes of that. Wesley says, At midnight I gave myself to Christ, assured finally that I was safe. Whether sleeping or waking, I had the continual experience of his power to overcome any and all temptation. And I confessed with joy and surprise that he was able to do exceedingly abundantly for me above what I could ask or think. He goes on to say in his journal, I now found myself at peace with God and rejoiced in the hope of loving Jesus Christ. I saw that by the faith in which I stood. Two days after this midnight experience where he gave his life to Christ, he began writing a hymn. He worked on it for a few days and into a few weeks, set it to music, and that hymn we just sang is called And Can It Be or Amazing Love. The hymn's words bear out his experience in verse four where he says, long my imprisoned spirit lay. In other words, I remember how the, I was gripped, I was held captive by my own efforts, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. He opened up his mind, in other words. I woke the dungeon flame with light and I love this line. My chains fell off my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. When he says my heart was free, he was finally freed of this treadmill of trying to do as much as he could to get God's attention. And then he wrote in the chorus, we've talked about this over and over, it's my favorite hymn, I'll probably talk about it again. That chorus that no other religion on the planet can identify with. Amazing love How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? No other religion in history, no other religion on the planet is like Christianity in this simple respect. Jesus was not just a prophet, not just a holy man. Jesus was and is God become man in the flesh. And so when Jesus died as a substitute for sinners, Wesley has it right. The shock and the trauma of that statement, that thou, my God, shouldst die as a substitute for my sin, the wrath and the the punishment that I, I deserve, that you would die for me. No other religion on the planet can come close to that kind of theology. And dare I say, no earthly mind would ever invent such a scheme. Then it crescendos with the final verse. 
It's, I've never been with a church, a, a group of believers, a church or a conference who, uh, who love Jesus Christ that this, this doesn't have this intuitive crescendo and, and volume and intensity when you sing this. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness that's not mine. What is it? Divine. And then he talks about that, that allusion to the Jewish temple where there was, a, there was a veil between the holy of holies, the access to God and everyone else except for the high priest once a year. He says, bold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love, how in the world can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Wesley later said that the motive for that line, no condemnation now I dread, is clearly articulated in Romans chapter eight, verse one. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As we've come up to the eighth chapter of Romans, though, it's a bit like climbing a mountain, climbing a long ridge. Imagine yourself on a hike, and you want to get up to see this view, and you have to go through, through difficulty, through woods, kind of go through some briars, get, get, uh, uh, get your sweat up. It's hard to get to the top, but the view is worth it when you're there. Let me just admit that the first seven chapters of Romans are hard trudging. They are difficult sometimes to uh, understand, sometimes difficult to apply, but they are rich, rich uh, theology that really provides the worth of Romans 8.1. You understand the, the reality of the greatness of Romans 8, I hope. Simply put, one of the most important chapters in God's word. Yes, every word in God's Bible is important, all are inspired, perfectly infallible, and errant, but few places are as rich in theology, insight, and practicality as the chapter before us. Charles Trumbull, who was a theologian, 1872 to 1941, editor of the Sunday School Times, said this of Romans 8, and I cannot improve on his understanding of this great chapter. He says, quote, the eighth chapter of Romans has become peculiarly precious to me. Beginning, I love this, beginning with no condemnation and ending with no separation. No defeat, all in between. This wondrous chapter sets forth the gospel and the plan of salvation, the life of freedom and victory, the hopelessness of the natural man and the righteousness of the born again. The indwelling of Christ and the Holy Spirit, the resurrection of the body, the blessed hope of Christ's return, the working together of all things together for our good. Every tense of the Christian life is touched by this chapter, a Christian's past and present and future. All the glorious and climactic song of triumph is uttered here, no separation in time or eternity from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, end quote. Whether or not you call Romans 8 one of your favorite chapters, it certainly ought to be one of the most precious to you. Now, let's remember how we got here. Now, I, I, I know I've talked to a few of you that I, I, I've become a little bit incessant in review. Please know that that's more for me than you, just to know where we are in the book. 
We can't parachute down. And some places there's, the chapter divisions don't serve us well. Those are, are, are added in by, by men later in the 14th century. But here is a place where the flow of the book has to come into focus. Chapter one, Paul says the gospel is for all people. No man can come to heaven. No man can come to be saved, whether Jew or Gentile. That means whether, whether you're under the commonwealth of God in the Older Testament, which shows the, the revelation of God and the choosing of his people to be lights to the world. Or you're outside of that, as most of us are. You're a Gentile. You weren't born Jewish. The gospel is for Everyone. No man can be saved without the gospel. And then, he's, then he isolates the Gentiles and he says, the Gentiles are condemned. They're, they're in trouble with God. Why are they in trouble with God? Well, he gives a list. He talks about homosexuality and he talks about lesbianism very graphically. He talks about uh, stuffing God's truth away and ignoring it. And then he gives a whole list of sinful uh, manifestations of a wicked heart that the Gentiles uh, are, are, are perpetually practicing Greed, envy, murder, strife, disobedience to parents even puts in there. And you can just hear those Jews who had their Old Testament saying, that's right, that's, that's those Gentiles. And then in chapter two, he says, actually, in verse one, he says, not only are you guilty of this, but it's worse off because you know better. And he says, the Jews too are condemned by God, not, they, they thought they were safe because they had a, the law, he says, no, that doesn't make you safe. What makes you safe is obeying and honoring the law. Then by the time you get to chapter three, he says, let me just be clear. There is none righteous, say it with me, no, not one. Nobody, everybody's in trouble with God. Then beginning in the last part of chapter three, he has this, this beautiful paragraph where he talks about how you can be saved. And he explains it so simply. And it's so unexpected. He says, a person can come to salvation in Christ before God and go to heaven by believing what God has done in Jesus, which no one else has ever done. God became a man. Bethlehem, we have the Christmas songs that we sing and the Christmas narrative we rehearse. Grew up perfect, spotless, a spotless lamb he's called. Never sinned. Having in himself all righteousness. Having in himself perfection. Our problem is that we need something and we have something we don't need. Every man needs perfection or righteousness to go to heaven. And none of us can do that. And every man has something we don't want or need, which is our sinfulness. Christ on the cross took our sin as a substitute, absorbing the wrath of God that thou, my God, shouldst die in my place for me. And then God, by declaration, says, if you believe in Christ, I will give you, I will grant you, I will, I will declare you righteous as him. And you say, how do you know all this is true? Because he rose from the dead. And the Jews would have been saying, now, that, that's interesting, but that's not what we're familiar with God saving, how we're not familiar with God saving people. He says, actually, it is. So in chapter four, he says, that's how Abraham was saved. Abraham was converted as a believer before he was even Jewish. 17 years before he was circumcised. And how did that happen? He believed God, he had faith in God, and it was counted or reckoned to him as righteousness. 
So Paul says, it's, it's always been this way with God. Then in chapter five, he uses the illustration of Adam and Christ. All, all men are sinful and wicked because we receive our, our natures from Adam. All who believe in Christ can be righteous because his nature is transferred and given to us. The problem is, it's not complete until we go to heaven. So in chapter six, he says, yes, we've been redeemed. Yes, our souls are saved, sanctified, and, and yet we are still plagued by these desires to sin. So he says, don't, because we're in Christ, don't go presenting your mind and your body as instruments of unrighteousness. And at the end of chapter seven, he then says, I have, I gotta admit to you, I struggle with this. The good things I wanna do, I don't do them like I want to. The bad things I don't wanna do, I find myself doing them. And then his conclusion is, oh, wretched man that I am, who, not what, who will deliver me from this body of death? And his answer is, but thanks be to God. Now we're at the hinge in verse 25 of chapter seven. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, and then he summarizes what he said. So here's my problem. On the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. But on the other hand, my flesh with the law of sin. I find that even though I love Jesus, I love God, I want to obey him, I still sin. That's a problem. Now one of the most practical problems that that lays in the soul and disposition of, of a lot of Christians, dare I say of almost all Christians, dare I say I've never met a Christian this didn't, affect is it messes with our assurance how can I be a Christian and not do all that I'm supposed to how can I be a Christian and not see this sin that just tackles me day in and day out and it puts us back into the reality of our over and understated eschatology or view of heaven, view of the end. Tom Schreiner talks about it so well in his book in Romans. He says, we're caught because we, we, we find ourselves playing, laying expectations on, my, on our lives and on this world where we think it's gonna be like heaven. Not entirely, but there are vestiges of it. But this isn't gonna be heaven until heaven he says we underestimate our eschatology because we don't see that God is in us and we can fight sin. We're caught in the already but not yet state. Paul understood that a fight with sin could lead us to conclude and speculate, maybe I'm not okay with God. Because, watch this, when we fight sin that involves our, our efforts, we always see that our efforts aren't enough. And that conclusion could lead us to the, the wrong conclusion that we must not know Christ if we still fight sin. Footnote to that is, are we really saying that if we never fight sin, then we know Christ? If we can get, eradicate sin, then we're okay? Not, not, not any chance of that, Romans 6, 1 says. He understands that at the end of describing the battle that we have in our hearts, that we need one thing, and that is assurance. So he provides for us in this first verse, which we're just gonna introduce today. We're gonna connect it to the, the, uh, the rest of the, um, uh, well, the next 11 verses after this. He gives us three dimensions of a believer's assurance of salvation. Three dimensions of how we can believe that we're saved and know we're saved, have confidence we're saved. That's what we struggle with most when we wrestle with our sin. He understands that, so he gives us three dimensions 
of a believer's assurance of salvation. The first is this, number one. Assurance for times of doubt. Assurance for times of doubt. To understand this, you've got to see the context. The context is you see the things you want to do, you don't do them. You do the things you don't want to do, you hate that. You understand that Christ has saved you and giving you his spirit, and yet you still have this, this tension, this frustration. So I want to take you through a little Greek lesson this morning, okay? He uses two Greek words together that act like amplifiers one with the other. They, they amplify each other. Aranun, two words. Therefore, now. Now, if you read this verse, you understand that each, any, either of these words could have been left out. Paul could have said, therefore, there is no condemnation. Paul could have said, now, there is no condemnation. But instead, he uses two words together that, that are like a loudspeaker. You see the volume turned up to 10. There is now, there now, therefore now. These are not so much talking about now like time, but now as in reference to our context. You say, what context? Wrestling with sin, therefore now. Brings up the issue that Paul has provided us with assurance in a time of doubt. Can we have a moment with each other just of vulnerability, okay? Have you ever struggled with your assurance of salvation? You don't have to nod. You don't have to raise your hand. My suspicion is there's not a person in this room who has not thought, how can I do the things that I don't want to do and not do the things that I know I ought to do and be a Christian? Something's wrong with me. You, You would be right. Something's wrong with me as well. But when that leads us to the conclusion that the gospel doesn't work, there's a problem. Paul says, therefore now, based on our struggle with sin, which he just said, chapter, I wish there was no chapter break between seven and eight. Therefore now, there's no condemnation. Doubt can be so debilitating in the life of a Christian's effectiveness. It can rob you of joy. I've known Christians who spend more time concerned with whether or not they're truly saved than they do trying to serve Christ. It just becomes all-consuming. It's all they think about. And most of the time when we're doing that, we're placing the, the fulcrum of our salvation on our own works rather than the finished work of Christ. So in the context, in a time when we need assurance, which is a time of doubt, which is what Paul says you would conclude after seeing the struggle at the end of verse seven, we have a second dimension of a believer's assurance of salvation. Not only assurance for times of doubt, but assurance for the fear of judgment. Assurance for the fear of judgment or assurance from or against the fear of judgment. This is the little phrase, no condemnation. Turn over for a moment to Revelation chapter 20. What's the greatest threat in the universe? You could think what you're afraid of. You could think of death. You could think of a lot of things. But actually, the greatest threat, the greatest challenge, the biggest fear we should have in the universe is of God. It's of God. God's the greatest threat, is he not? 
Luke 12, do not fear him who can destroy body, but fear him who can destroy body and soul in hell. I tell you, fear him. That's God. Why? Why is God a threat? Why is God fearful? Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Because he can execute condemnation. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven melted. They fled away and there was no place was found for them. There was no place they could hide. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and the books were open and another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Chapter 8 of verse 21. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. This is a description of what Paul, you can go back to Romans 8 now, is discussing when he says the word condemnation. Katakrima in the Greek. It's a legal technical term for, it's the result of judging. It includes both the sentence and its execution of condemnation. It's a sentence of doom, It's, it's punishment. It's irrevocable, it's unappealable. The word doesn't mean just a pronouncement of guilt, but the the actual adjudication of that guilt, the punishment. It's the execution of the just penalty. Look back for a second in chapter five, verse 16. I want to see how show you how this word is used elsewhere. Remember, Romans 5 is talking about Adam and Christ. The gift is not like that which came through the one, the one who sinned. That's Adam. The, the free gift of God. Salvation is not like the, what came through Adam who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression. And what was the result of Adam's sin for him and for us? Resulting in, here's our word, condemnation. Being guilty. But on the other hand, the free gift, that's salvation in Christ, arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. He covers our transgression. Look two verses down, verse 18. Then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even through one act of righteousness, that's the cross, there resulted justification of life to all men. Everyone lives under the condemnation of God. Everyone, universally. Everyone has a need for their sin to be dealt with and for righteousness to be given to them or we're in trouble with God. 
You can see the verbal form, by the way, if you're really interested in this. Uh, and back in verse two, remember he's confronting the Jews. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you, here's our word in verbal form, you condemn yourself. It's very interesting how this is used in 1 Corinthians 11. This is remarkable in reference to our church life in the celebration of the Lord's table. Paul says to the Corinthians in the, at the end of his discussion of the Lord's Supper, he says, but when, when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. When God judges and disciplines a Christian, it's different than judging and disciplining and condemning an unbeliever. And we can't help but look across the page We'll come back to this, obviously, in chapter 8, verse 31. Well, you could, let's just read for a minute. I'll show you our word. If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? There it is. If God saves, who could possibly bring condemnation? That's the the idea. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, and who prays for us, who intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Then he asks a series of questions. Will tribulation or distress persecution or famine, nakedness, peril, sword. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us From the love of God. How do you find the love of God? Which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I remember reading that section to my mom the day before she died. And hearing her say, nothing could give me more peace and joy than that thought. Three dimensions of a believer's assurance of salvation. It's timely. We have assurance in times of doubt. We have no fear of judgment. It's assurance when we think about being condemned. There is no condemnation. And then we find out the why. Reassurance. I chose that word carefully for those in Christ. Reassurance. This is something you have to do over and over. You don't do it. You don't settle your assurance once and and you never wrestle with it again. Reassurance for those who are in Christ. Look at that little phrase. For those, and it's only those who are in Christ. Look down at verse nine. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. You're in Christ. Christ is in you. What does it mean to be in Christ? It means relationship. It means protection. It means solidarity. 
If you go back over and you really want to study this intently into chapter 6, the first 11 verses, he tells you that. Do you not know, verse 3, that all of us who have been baptized or believed in Christ have been baptized into his death, were buried with him through baptism so that Christ, as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we might walk in newness of life, all the dimensions of Christ's life, his work we identify with. Those, are, those have practical application to us. That's what it means to be in solidarity with and in Christ. It means we're saved by Jesus. But don't miss the exclusivity here. It says, for those who are in Christ. I just want to beg you, if you are here and you, Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, there is only safety from judgment and condemnation in Christ. Because he is our substitute. He died in our place, a death we deserve. He gives us righteousness we need, which we could have never earned. He rose from the dead and gives us hope for eternity. No other religious leader in any other movement died for the sins of his believers. A Christian does not draw a verdict of condemnation from God. Remember what Paul told the Corinthians who were struggling with assurance? He said, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves or do you not recognize this about your heart, yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you. Here's our solidarity. Unless indeed you fail the tests. 2 Corinthians eleven three. So is Christ in you? Are you in Christ? He's the only safety. He's the only harbor from God's judgment. He's the only proxy for us who stands as God for us and us for God. It's a dative phrase that for those in Christ Jesus. By the way, this is one of Paul's favorite ways to describe Jesus in Romans. We usually say Jesus Christ. Paul reverses it. He, we just read it at the end of, of chapter eight as well. Christ Jesus. Why does he do that? He says, he's the anointed one. He's God in the flesh who is also a man from Nazareth named Jesus. For all unbelievers in Christ, there is complete condemnation for every one of their sins. For Christians, there is complete exemption because of Christ. Why? Because Jesus Christ, by his death, wipes out all the sins for all those who believe and justifies and regenerates wicked sinners. See how this is important that this is here at the end of Romans 7? Shuts down all presumption. It's all and only in Christ. Put all this together, and here's the, here's the, the summation of it. There is no death sentence for those who are in Christ Jesus. And all of us were born with a death sentence in trouble with God. We're gonna come back to this, this verse in the context of the next 11 in our next study. But let me just say something with Mr. Wesley. If you've never come to the point where you understand the word dread, no condemnation, now I dread. You really haven't understood your position before God. 
I've shared with some of you before uh, one of my most horrific moments as a youth leader. Don't, if you have youth, don't use this as an excuse not to send your kids to camp, okay? Because it was totally benign and innocent, at least in motivation. We, we took a group of collegians, I don't know, about 60 collegians over to Grand Canyon. We are on the North Rim, which is higher. It's way more beautiful if you've been there. It's less, it's more remote. We were tent camping, and uh, we were out on these boulders. I, we got there late, set up our tents. They were out on these boulders by the edge of the canyon um, uh, singing and worshiping. We had a great time. And uh, we're just kind of jumping from rock to rock and then came back and went to bed. And the next morning, I got up early and I, I thought, I want to go have my quiet time back over at that place. And I went over there and all I can tell you is I got physically sick at my stomach. When I realized that it was a 2,000 foot sheer cliff off the rocks we were sitting I was not in a good place. Thought I needed to resign, call their parents and say, I'm so sorry. I remember that dread and thinking how much better it would have been to have had that dread when I was sitting on the rock the night before. How much better it would be to know the trouble we were in so we could have made an adjustment. Can I just tell you this verse and this passage and this gospel gives all of us fair warning. You and I are born in trouble with God. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, no condemnation now I dread. Wesley was right. And Jesus and all in him is mine. Would you bow with me? Close your eyes for a moment in prayer. I want to ask two groups of people to do some consideration. First of all, if you're a Christian, you've been giving your life to Christ for many weeks, months, years, decades, and you, you've struggled with assurance, can I just give you what Paul gives us, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ? You can place your hope confidently on him. And if you're fighting your sin and you feel that tension, that's a good thing. That's a good struggle. Make sure your faith and your hope and your confidence and your assurance is on Christ, his work, his person, his love, not your own failures and inabilities. That'll motivate you to please him even more. But... It could be that you're here and you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, and you've heard about it before. It may be all new to you. Let me beg you to consider the truth and the reality that no other religion is like Christianity in this, that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. No religion takes care of sin except the Lord Jesus Christ in Christianity. Please, please consider your status before God and your need for Jesus as a Savior. I'm gonna sing, and after we do so, our prayer room is gonna be open. We'd love to talk with you, pray with you, lead you to the knowledge of salvation. The people around you would love to talk to you. You don't have to come to the prayer room. You can talk to the folks in your row. They would love to share with you. But don't leave with unresolved guilt and sin with your holy and righteous creator. Lord, now give us 
an unusual appreciation and understanding for all you are in Christ for us. Show us the true state of our heart and the true state of your heart as merciful and gracious to solve our greatest problem and give us what we want and need most, a relationship with you. We pray this because of Jesus. Amen.